1: which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Ready to pop the
0: question?
1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance, life When you can understand person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all
0: on the same team. Know your role you and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense
1: has got to be better. we've no doubt
0: nothing. Great moments are born
1: from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership. And so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our families, our colleagues and our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Malcolm Blight. Malcolm is a former Australian rules football player who is the only person in the game's history to win the Brownlow, McGarry and Coleman medals. As a coach, he has led multiple teams notably winning the back-to-back premierships with Adelaide in 1997 and 1998. He was inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame in 1996 and was elevated to legend status in 2017. Interviewing Malcolm was a great highlight for us. He was one of the people we wrote on our dream list when we first started the podcast. There are many, many highlights, but the ones that stayed with me after the interview were his view that coaching is predominantly about your eyes and how you use them to create a picture for the athlete of what they need to do. How he had to learn to stop being so harsh on himself and his players to transform his coaching and leadership and the story he shares that illustrates this change. The way he describes the difference between the corporate and sporting worlds being centred around the amount of time available to use when it comes to building strategy and relationships. And how it was the obsession around coaching that would take hold of him that ultimately caused him to reevaluate his desire to lead and coach teams. This was a wonderful conversation, a real highlight for us, and we hope you enjoy it. Here at the Great Coaches podcast, we're working to create one of the world's best leadership libraries from the lessons and ideas our interview guests share with us. You can help support our project. And get access to the Leadership Lessons episodes where we collate insight and wisdom from the great coaches on key topics like culture, vision, or behaviors, as well as other exclusive content by joining our Patreon community. All the details on how you can be part of this journey are in the show notes. And now, please enjoy our interview with Malcolm Blight.
0: You're listening to the Great Coaches Podcast.
1: Malcolm Blight, good morning and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Uh, good morning Paul and how are you this fine day oh, i'm uh, I'm pretty good it's a little overcast here in Sydney but having an hour to speak to you means I don't have to spend an hour uh, cutting away the uh, cuttings in the back garden so I'm very much looking forward to this <laughs> oh, and welcome back to Australia too <laughs> Thank you very much Malcolm could I start by asking you something really simple where are you in the world and what have you been doing so far today
2: um I'm in my hometown of Adelaide, South Australia, um, after spending, I'm 72 years of age, I can work it out, Uh, about to have another birthday, but right now I'm 72, I've spent 18 years in Queensland, I've spent 18 years in Victoria, and I've spent 36 years in South Australia, so it's a nice little even number at the moment. We've moved around a bit, we've had 24 addresses in our life with my wife, darling wife Patsy, so... Jobs and moving and itchy feet and all that sort of stuff uh, has has made us move around the country in a great country. So we've enjoyed everything. Uh, now we're just settling back into the into the hometown that we both came
1: from. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you about the whole journey you've been on. There's football teams, there's a corporate role, there's cricket, there's multiple sports. We're gonna we're gonna get into all of that in our discussion. But I'd like to start by. Talking about Mr. Ron Barassi, so you had the uh, pleasure of playing for perhaps the most famous Australian rules coach of all time. But then you transitioned into coaching, and you came up against a couple of other pretty good ones in the names of Mick Malthouse and David Park. And, and I would like to start by asking you, from this perspective, from Ron and Mick and David, and all the other great coaches you've met along your journey, what is it you think the modern great coaches do differently? that sets them apart? Look,
2: uh, I mean, it's a multi-layered thing. We know all that. One of the things that I've I've discovered and I figured out, mainly um, with Ron Barassi, let's just go back there a bit. You know, he was called the super coach. He was the first of the super coaches. He played at the Melbourne Football Club in a very successful era under Norm Smith, the great Norm Smith. And then he went to Carlton as a playing coach. He almost pulled the grandstands down as another football club in Australia. So, And he had and he won some flags, won a couple of flags there. So and then he came to North Melbourne where I was, uh, eventually came uh, the year after he'd already been there for a year. And then we won a couple of flags. So th- this this guy was the, the first and original super coach. Now, I can tell you now, it's the greatest load of crap you've ever heard. There, there, there is... There is no such thing as a super coach. Um, what it is, it is a person or persons now, as we call it, getting together with a group of athletes, no matter what the sport. Let's talk about Australian rules football, because that's probably what you're better known for, is that there is a list of players. The only way you can become a very good coach is first and foremost to have very good players. You can't do it otherwise. I've coached at the top, I've coached from the bottom, There is no doubt talent on the ground, no matter what the sport is, will get you across the line. Now, the trick is, do you finish top four if you don't pull the right strings on a given day as a coach? You know, there are decisions you make as a coach, as a leader of the club and in any any business even. And those (laughs) are never found out until the final siren or until the profit and loss at the end of the month. When you make those decisions, now, some of them just might be, look, what we're going to do is we're going to put a barocca a Barocca a tablet, give them an extra little bit of fizz in their drink rather than just water. It's a really simple one. But sometimes you make those decisions. Uh, what we're going to do is kick this side of the ground. And we're not going to go over that side of the ground. So there's all those things a coach goes through and makes those. That helps you maybe win one, two, three games a year. And I reckon as a coach you get lucky two, three, four times a year if you're really lucky. The rest of it is pretty mundane. You do Everyone does the same thing. You train hard, you work hard, you try and give blokes confidence. So the super coach is no such thing. What you do is get some very diligent people with a talented group, make it that much better.
1: Malcolm, I have this quote from you where you say, Coaching is about painting a picture, and I wanted to flip it around a bit, and I want to ask you, what did you have to unlearn from your days playing in order to discover that importance about painting a picture when you became a coach?
2: Yeah, I I think it it was my upbringing. Um, You know, I used to watch football locally, Uh, the club I ended up playing for in the end, but I used to watch players with their hands on the ball, so I'd I, you'd actually see the way they did it. And so, co- coaching for me, and I try and explain this to a lot of people, coaching is almost not about your mouth or your tongue; it's with your eyes, and your eyes actually tell you what you need to say, do, or react next. So, everyone understands what a picture is. If I say to you, "Picture Mona Lisa." i bet you you can picture it. And anyone probably over 10, 12 or 13 in our system would know what the Mona Lisa is and the picture of that lovely lady. So if you see, when I talk to players, and I, and I did talk to players, I tried to put them in their position on the ground and show the work that they needed to do. Did you need to go left? Did you need to go right? Did you need to do this? So what I Tried to do in the end after I stopped shouting because my initial coach Ron Barouse used to shout a lot because that was the way it was done. So I actually tried to give them a picture of where they fitted into the team as an individual and then obviously as part of the team. But so, if, if just for instance, I'd say, look, this guy is a left handed puncher in our game, you know, spoiling from behind, punching the ball away. So the V is going to probably be in this area here on this right-hand side of where the ball comes in. Oh, so why don't you run there? You've got more chance of getting the ball. So so that's what I call painting a picture. And everything, I mean, I've seen a lot of things written about me. Some of the stuff I did on the ground apparently was unexplainable, which is rubbish. Everything's explainable because you could take a mark or kick a goal or all that sort of stuff. Everything – that you could see on the ground that either I did or any other player did was explainable. And so every time I got into that situation trying to teach was that, why don't we look at this and I'll show you what I mean. All of a sudden, that player then puts himself in that picture.
1: Malcolm, you talk about teaching and what's fascinating in your story is that after you retired – You know, you went back to your childhood club. You retired from the the big league. You went back to to where you were from in South Australia and you became the player, the coach, the administrator, the marketer. You were doing everything at once. And I'm I'm curious, how did that experience shape your approach to leadership for the bigger roles that were to come?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the story is, let's just say, in the premier competition, which was the VFL in those days, Uh, I I coached my old club. I was the last playing coach at North Melbourne. So no one's ever done it. No one's been silly enough to do it since. And and very quickly, easily, it was because we're playing a game at the MCG against Richmond, coaching North Melbourne. And we had a couple of kids playing. You know, we had a lot of injuries. So I started playing some kids and I talked to them after the game. We got beat. I talked to them after the game I said, look, I want to spend some time with you with your kicking, you know, and I'll show you under pressure. I'll paint that picture for you under pressure that this is how you can learn to kick better. I just kicked four goals eight, four goals and eight points. I could just see their eyes starting to roll. At the end of that game, I I knew the playing coach was gone. It wasn't as do as I say, it's going to be a whole new team. And I think coaching from that day on in my eyes, I flicked the switch. Uh, I didn't survive that, of course, and it didn't matter because I kept on playing. But I kicked 100 goals at the end of the next season and I could have easily kept on playing in the premier comp. But I I was itchy to teach. I was itchy that I'd failed, supposedly failed, as the last playing coach. So I really wanted to coach again. And the worst football club in Australia at that time, senior football club, just happened to be my old home club back in Adelaide. So I left Melbourne and came back and coached a one-win team, one win. There's not a lot of talent there, mate, not a lot of talent. So actually what you had to do was restart and teach, paint the picture, how you hold the ball, how you handle. almost went back to the basics of football, but I I actually enjoyed it. it. It actually gave me something internally and eventually, not initially, not initially, but eventually that became you so that the teaching became the mantra.
1: It's funny. You, you, you say, I love coaching, I love teaching. It's a quote I've got for you. But what's interesting is it's not just teaching the basics and beginners. You're actually noted and well-known, Malcolm, for getting the very best out of the very best, out of the elite players that you've, that you've had in your sphere of influence and leadership. So when it comes to unlocking potential in people, I'm really curious to hear what advice you've got for other leaders.
2: Well, yeah, I guess the development of, of watching players and watching games and watching other teams and all that sort of stuff is that, let's just say the gifted players, and it's not that. You still have to train. You still have to practice hard. You have to do all that sort of stuff. But those that apparently, you know, the really, really gifted players, what I found was that they were seeking to get better. When you talk to them deep down, the really honest, really, really good ones, the, the great ones, wanted to get better. And, and someone asked me many, many years ago as a player, what do you want to do? You know, oh, I just I just hope I get better. Never wanted to be the best. Some have. Some have gone public on that, and that's fine. I never wanted to be the best because that means you usually get jumped over. You know, you, 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 that's where you want to finish. So... And when, when, when I started talking to a lot of those really, really good players, they wanted to even get a bit better. As soon as they started talking like that, then you could talk. Have you thought about using your body when you first feel it, nudge someone? And so all the little technique things that I'd use as a player and started to coach, I mean, I think they got a buzz out of, because you're actually spending time with them, not saying that's great, that's great, that's great, was anyhow, but here, here's something I reckon help you get better. And that became, you know, a bit of a thing with all those very good players that I ended up coaching. And uh, gee, they all reacted. React, they all reacted beautifully. They all got better.
1: Malcolm, you—I I don't think it's any uh, stretch or hyperbole to say you were a great player yourself, one of the greats. Do you think your status and history allowed them to listen? Or was it just simply your ability to teach? Yeah,
2: good. I mean, that's a, that's a really fair question. Um, you'd have to ask them. I don't know. Um, I, I guess someone once said, well, there's nothing you haven't done on the football field that anyone else hasn't. Now, does that help? I reckon if, if you don't handle that right... And I hardly ever talked about myself. That's honest. I have a bit of fun with myself now because all the youngies forget how good we were (laughs) in a way. But it is true. Um, I I probably never talked about that. I actually explained it in a way that they could help. Now, I didn't ever show footage of myself, but I, I just I guess that is something. I probably had the entrance to the door. But you still have to put that sentence together or that picture together to walk through it to help them. So I think it probably did help. But as I said, there's a a finality to that. If you can't put it together and explain it to them, you're no good anyhow.
1: It's interesting because through this series of interviews we've done, there's there's not a lot of great players that go on to be great coaches. And one of the explanations I've heard played back from some of the great coaches is, it's so intuitive for the great players. It's just they see things, they react, it's intuitive. And they don't always have that skill to break it down and explain what they did for others. But it seems like you've been able to marry that with your own history and that perhaps is where the uh, the secret source is.
0: <laughs> yeah, I,
2: yeah, I think mm, it's probably... You've got to start talking about yourself when you answer that. So it's probably it's probably it's a good difficult. talk. I have, a lot of, I have a lot of fun with it, but I do. And it really it goes back to my upbringing in watching my favourite players, the way they moved on the ground. I, I would just watch a player. I wouldn't watch the whole game sometimes. I would just watch a player that I really, really liked and just to see what he was doing when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. So one of the things I should say here is, so how do you develop that? And it came when I moved from Adelaide to Melbourne, you know, to the premier competition, the VFL, and and with Ron Barassi as coach. And North Melbourne played in six grand finals in a row, which is very, you know, the championship game, as as you would well know. And it became – what actually happened was Brass would – he would shout a lot. I mean, and I did that early too, by the way. I was a shouter. Um, But in the end, you realise that, you know, you can shout occasionally, which helps. But Brass had – we had There were three games only televised of the six in my time in Melbourne. And on our board was a guy called Ron Casey, one of the great commentators, one of the great TV men in the game, who's a mad North Melbourne supporter. So we could go to the Channel 7 studios, and the old three-quarter-inch tape, for all those that remember it, before we now got everything new newfangled, is that we would go there on a Thursday night and either watch us for 15 or 20 minutes and the opponent that we might be playing next week. Now, when he showed us, he generally picked out all the mistakes, you know, so you got smashed. But what it did, it opened my eyes to the possibilities of teaching. So when I got introduced to that video coach Ron Barassi did through Channel 7 and that great setup in the early days in Melbourne, wow, it, it's, it suddenly hit me that here is a teaching tool. Not only to get yelled at, but I could see—I could actually start to see my teammates. Not that I'd say anything because it wasn't my position, but I could—and I could actually see some of the things that I did. I think, ah, hell, if I could do that better and that better, so I started watching videos, just and started helping the player, not not by voice, just in mentally. So I started picturing myself, actually doing that, but it was actually press introducing the video, to a very lucky North Melbourne team, um, I, I, I thought, but he only honed in on the mistakes, not the good stuff.
1: I want to talk to you about video, actually, because I've read where after a loss, you could become quite obsessive, poring over video, staying up all night until you found the reason for the loss. You could identify what needed to change for the next game, and we're ready to communicate that the next day. And I... It sounded obsessive to me, and I wondered what you've learnt along your journey around obsession either helping or hindering when it comes to leadership.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. There were some things, just growing up, once again, you you always, I don't know, just, uh, as I said, like to be better, but... I think deep down I really like to win you know there was this appetite inside of me to oh, I, oh, you know we all get beat you know we all mess up God no one's perfect so but when I did I, I could analyze it out in the ground oh you dickhead. you know you what did you do that for or how did that happen and so I was, I was pretty harsh on them. I had a coach that was pretty harsh early on myself but also I was harsh on myself. So, that, you know, when that transposed into, into coaching, you know, you'd look back after the game and, yeah, I yelled early and then I got better at it. But I think, oh, jeez, I could have done something there. How come I missed that on the day? So it was as much for learning of the players as it was for myself, you know, a simple structure thing you could have done. So I would pour hours and hours over every Single thing that happened on the ground, let's say there's a thousand or twelve hundred items, I would go down, write something that we could have done. Now, at the end of those, that time, it could be three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock, twelve o'clock, four o'clock, didn't matter. I just lost track of time. That I would write down so many notes, so many notes, little bullet points, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Then, even then, sometimes I went to bed finally. And it still could, it just didn't jump out at me. So I had to pour over the notes again the next morning, pretty tired. But sometimes you get into the second quarter think ah, ah. And I can remember clearly one time we'd been kicking to the boundary line, going too wide for far too long in our game, you know, that you can go boundary, you can go middle. And it was just this click. So I showed three bits of footage in a row and said, boys, you know, that three hours or two hours that I spent that night, came a 30-second clip. And then we went out and trained it. So it would sometimes it would be, you know, you'd see it quickly, other times you wouldn't. But I always tried to find something so that we would gear our training to get better. And then I did, I wrote every training note, not one person ever helped me with that. Now they've got six, seven, five, six, seven coaches. Now they've got five, six, seven people analyzing that game through video and then coming in with their bit. In my day, I did it myself, and, and I was happy to do it. I felt that was my role. So I wanted to know why me being the leader of the club, the coach of the club, didn't pick that up on game day. Now, sometimes I'd mention it in our in our um, review. Other times I wouldn't, you know, but then I'd say, hey, I reckon if I did that, we could do that better. So occasionally you owned up to the mistake, and I think a lot of players... Like that. You didn't do it all the time, by the way. Usually it's, you know, it's what happens on the ground is where that where it goes wrong. So yeah, I, I couldn't. Uh Paul, it was just one of those things. It was me. I started as a young player and I carried it through my coaching.
1: Malcolm, a couple of times in this discussion, you've talked about yelling and shouting. And it almost sounds like a turning point for you was when you learned to either control that or step away from it. Correct. Did it happen all at once Or was it a slow shift
2: No I think it was a slow shift After um, You know the North Melbourne bit um, and, and coming back To Adelaide to coach my old club When you win one game As I mentioned before you know, There's not a lot of talent on the ground so, And I found That players That aren't very good Struggle to listen you know, they don't, actually, they don't actually listen, because if they listen, they would actually get better a bit quicker. And some of them say, well, I'm not good enough, but that's not true. So what you had to do to get their attention, and that's, I don't know, you know, you probably yell too much, you know, to get your attention. And then after a while, hang on, this is, we're not going anywhere here. You know, the, the first 18 months back there, it was like, no, no, this is, this is not working. So one day, we lost again, went to the bottom of the ladder again. And I remember sitting out with a really good mate of mine, John Reed, um, who was coaching our seconds team at the time. I just said, look, I, I reckon, we, I reckon if, if we kicked better today, we would have won. It was one of the first times. It, it was a bright light moment. After a game, the two of us sitting in a deserted football ground, in an opposition ground by that, at, at that, just said, this is, I reckon that was okay today. So, so I walked into the room after, I could clearly remember it and thinking, hey, I didn't yell because I genuinely thought we should have won that game. Now, we just needed to tidy up one or two things. Anyhow, cut a long story short, we went out for next five games. And then that started the role of not shouting. So uh, it was actually a, it, it was one of those moments in your life, you think, and I can still clearly remember it thinking, no, they, that was okay. It was okay to get you know. Sometimes it's okay, not okay to get beat, but there is a way to get beat, and I think we all understand that. It's, I've never seen any team, any person, be perfect in their whole life in their sporting career. It just doesn't happen. So, from that point onwards, it actually became a lot more focus on on coaching, teaching, rather than yelling, because that's the way, that's the way Ron Barassi did it, and that's the way he was taught with uh, Norman Smith. I mean, they were very aggressive, and, and I know why. Um, they came out of war years, second world war years, a lot of those people, and stand, deliver, you know, that army system. I, I, I get it. I get why that happened. But, you know, I think there was, you know, I, I perhaps could have changed slightly quicker.
1: Malcolm, another interesting element of your story is that great player... Leading sporting teams and coaching, but you've also led a large company, SPD Transport. And I'm really curious to hear what similarities and differences between an organization and a sporting club stood out most to you.
2: Um, yeah, you know, Paul, it's a word called time. And somehow or other, um, the modern player in our game. Has time. They spend 40 hours with the coaches a week. So, so it's a full time job. In my time, when I was doing it, it was very much a part time role in football and a full time role at work. So you did your 40 hours at work, and it's almost sane and sensible because you have to live with these people every day, every minute, always. It, it, they become like your family. So you work with them. You know, if if Johnny's got a crook foot, please go and see him at school. You know, if something awful happened, please have a few days off. So you actually learn to live with the sympathy of all the things that life presents when you've got time, when you've got 40 hours a week with them. In our day, when we started out as coaches, we would be lucky to get two, two hours Tuesday. Two hours Thursday, maybe a little bit on Wednesday or Monday, and then game day and an occasional run on a Sunday morning. So I worked it out probably, probably seven hours, maybe eight. So what you had to do was fit in what they now fit 40 hours in. And people don't understand it. No one's ever talked about it. So the pressure, the time pressure you got in coaching the guys to try and get your message across as a coach in the, let's say semi professional day, So it became this aggressiveness, this yelling, this got to get done quickly. Whereas now, just like work, you can take your time. And I know you've run big business. Mate, I loved it. I loved the thrust and parry of the corporate world. You know, I had three separate corporate roles for seven years at a time. And I loved it. I loved the the leadership. I loved the time you got. You could discuss things and move on and then make decisions. Whereas in football, you've got to make them now. Because you've got no time. And I guess even now, watching them operate as I was with the Gold Coast Suns, I went up there for five or six years with the, in the coaching group, it is, it, it is like a work environment. There's almost no time pressure at all. So I think time was the evil of the semi-professional era of the AFL.
1: Oh, it's such a such a great answer, Malcolm. And I listen to you talking about time and I I just wish I had a little bit more of it to ask you more questions, but I'll keep going along. I want to get on to self-doubt actually, because I have got this quote from you and you say, I think everyone doubts themselves at some stage. I don't think that there is anyone that's ever played sport who doesn't. So you got to fight some demons. Now it's the last part that caught my eye: this whole idea of fighting demons. And I'm, you've coached some m- real mavericks, you've coached some of the great games' greats, but also just players who have, you know, been role players that have gone on to play in premierships as well. So I was wondering if there was a story or an anecdote or something you could share where you've worked with a person and helped them overcome their doubts so that they could improve.
2: Yeah, Um there's a number, of course. One that springs to mind is he is now a dual premiership player and a 300-game player at the Adelaide Football Club, so part of those premiership years. He was a young boy from the, the, the Murray Mallee in South Australia, between here and Victorian border, and his name was Tyson Edwards. I've told the story, and I, I know Tyson, um uh, yeah, anyhow. I I tell the story because I think it's a great story and there's many, many like Tyson but what actually happened was Tyson on the training track when I first went to Adelaide was a beautifully balanced player smooth across the ground with enough speed beautiful kick left foot, right foot beautiful take of the ball beautiful decision maker in training one of the Really, really – you know, sometimes you just – I just admire when you get the training. Sometimes, you know, you get a bit humdrum at training sometimes because, you you know, you're always trying to search for something. You oh, gee, this lad's – oh, how good's this kid look? Out in the training track, right? He played a few games, not many, and he played for a local club called West Adelaide. So the start of the season, just not – I don't know, just not happening. Just not happening. So I sat down with him. One day, and I just said, Tyson, just you know, I don't know you very well. let let's. This is early dawson, and just where, where did how did how did you get to the Adelaide Football Club? In in a, in a way, he said, oh, you know, I used to play junior football, and you know, and then West Ad I went down to West Adelaide. That was their zone, and and I I, I don't know why I asked this question, but I said, um, how, how many how many times have you, have you got on best on ground in in you know, in, in a young career. So he would have been playing since nine or 10. He was probably 18 or 19 then. So nearly eight, nine years, which, oh, I never have. I said, you've you've actually, he said, no, I don't think I've ever been in the best three ever. ever. What well, all through the junior grades, all through here, now you're at Adelaide Football Club, and, and you're telling me, he said, no, I've never, I don't reckon I've ever been, in, and he's a really honest, you know, if you knew him now, he, he's a really honest lad. I said, you've never been in, you know, arguably the best three on the ground in the votes. No, never got a vote in the middle, never got anything. Wow. So there's this lad, I wonder, his doubt. He, he's been through this whole system of, you know, association teams playing at a league club, then playing at an AFL club. And if you can't, and not, not knowing where he was at didn't think he was anywhere near, still wasn't certain why he was doing it, wasn't certain why he was playing footy even, because he didn't think he was very good. And yet I could see this bubble, you know, this something's in there. I just you just know something's in there. Anyhow, you had to put him back to West Adelaide, right? You can't keep playing because he's doing nothing. Anyhow, after about four weeks, you know, and I'd go around and watch these let's say, you know, the seconds games of our team. Anyhow, I didn't go to the Richmond Oval West Adelaide play. And about four or five weeks later, in the local paper on the Sunday after game at West Adelaide, best player for West Adelaide, Tyson Edwards. Well, I, yeah, I remember shouting. Pictures. My wife said, what's wrong? He's done it. He's done it. Like, this is five, six weeks later anyhow so what i did i got the i got the paper and i blew it up the scores and the i got edwards best players and i blew it up like hell and just put it stuck it inside his locker so that when he came on monday training because he's still training with us obviously then westy's doing later in the week so i put that up on the board welcome back it was it, it was ah the moment so it yeah Doubt, a lot of people have doubt. Even the great ones have doubt at some stage. You know, no one's perfect. But the Tyson Edwards story is, is a lovely story because, as I said, ended up playing an apprenticeship side that year, the following year, and ended up being a 300-game player and a
1: bloody good one at that. It's it, it just something just unlocked. Thank goodness. Malcolm, you're quite well known for your innovative and unusual methods of motivating players. I wanted to ask you what you've learned around the art and science of motivation over the years
2: yeah I'm certain one of the hmm, that's the best way to describe it. I, I've always thought that if, if something wasn't working and this is at work too you know even at home you know you with your own kids uh, that didn't work. So, so, do we keep going down that track? And, and particularly, probably business taught me that as much as anything. You know, if we keep doing that, we're not going to get that result. So, let's just come from a different angle. And I'm sure you've been through that. I'm sure most people have. Whereas football tended to be straight down the line. You know, kick it here, do this. They do that. They run there and they kick a goal. You know, and so, and, and usually, you know, probably 80, 85% of the time, that works. And there's nothing wrong with that, but occasionally I just ah, this is not right. We're not, you know, you can just feel the joint just dropping a little bit. So I play games, you know. I just do stuff, and I. People said, "Where did you get the stuff from?" I said, "Up here in my head," you know. And I, I would just think of scenarios, and some of them, some of them work beautifully, <laughs> some, some didn't. Um, so you ended up with a sort of name this. this sort of half-genius, half-madman thing. But, I mean, probably true. But in the end, I mean, I just did stuff. I I wanted to – sometimes you want to excite the group. Sometimes, you you know, you wanted to get them out of their comfort zone. Sometimes you wanted to make it fun. You know, like Damien Hardwick, who I listened to your interview with him, you know, when he had that change – and before the game, you know, the last couple of years they've been telling jokes to each other before the game, and in this high pressurized environment. Well, I was doing that twenty years ago. You know what I mean? Just mucking around. But sometimes, no, you then you then you get serious, and then you do this, and then you do that. Then you'd say, kick over this side of the ground. No, that one. I mean, it was just. I did some stuff. Uh, a lot of them have been run around a million times now, but it was really just to create a different environment, a different mindset for a group of people that hopefully bought into it. Uh, A lot of times they did. Sometimes they didn't. Um, But that's coaching.
1: Malcolm, I read where you said that in the end you were glad to be out of coaching because what it forced you to become and subsequently learn about yourself. Um, If you're comfortable sharing, I'd be intrigued to understand what was that learning?
2: Yeah, no, that was at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I mainly because we talked about it earlier maybe that obsession you know that it couldn't leave your body so that you know when you are you know you're talking and it just becomes all-consuming um i think now with the group of coaches that are involved in our game now it, it it would be probably easy for someone like me that you could actually share that whereas i felt because i was in charge oh I, I, if we're going to lose, it's going to be done my way. You know that autocratic style. Now that probably wouldn't get the job done now, but but I wouldn't be like that now because you've got all these other people around you. So I, I just think that it would. I, I could just feel myself slipping. Both, you know, yeah, it was just one of those things. I just you could just see yourself going downhill. And once you start doing that, I reckon you start showing it, and I reckon players pick it up, the club picks it up, whatever. But it certainly was at, uh, certainly at the end of Geelong and certainly at the end of Adelaide. You, you can just feel yourself slipping into this abyss, really, uh, because of that obsession, I think.
1: Malcolm, you, you, we talked, I asked you earlier about some of the, I don't know if maverick is the right word, but you, 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 you coached some players that were very unique and had special abilities. And I didn't so much want to ask you about those players. I wanted to ask you about how did you go structuring guardrails or team rules but also giving yourself enough flexibility to handle people who just needed different things in order to function at their best.
2: Yeah. um, I I think the best story is uh, probably one of the most famous blokes I coached was a guy called Gary Ablett Senior, an absolute freak of a player. You know, he's now kicked nine goals in a grand final, um, the record. Um, Gary was different, no doubt about it. Most players are different to each other, but Gary was so different. And he had this pension, the Sunday morning training, you know, which is really just a light kick around and run just to get some, you know, some muscles going again. Um, He he hadn't turned up a couple of times. And um, so I spoke to him and he he was involved in a church, right? So, and that was very important to him. So I, I had this dilemma, you know, out in the track, you say you've got 48 players and the 49th one's not there. Anyhow, um, so I, what I decided to do, I waited a couple of weeks and I and I spoke to our captain and a couple of others and said, "Look, I, I'm going to sort this out, right? And I'll, over the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll, I'm really going to sort this out." So we played <laughs> on the Saturday. We played the Richmond Football Club at the MCG again, and Gary kicked 14 goals. We won. <laughs> We, we we won quite handsomely. So that – and he didn't turn up Sunday. He was at church. That's what he told me. I believed him. Um, so on the Monday, I, got, did, I didn't need a leadership group. You know, I think leadership groups are quite interesting. In some ways, they're overrated and waste of time. Other times, they're good. But I just got the six senior players because I'll guarantee you now, the six senior players – Like the six senior people in your business or anyone's business, they run the place. I mean, they're the ones that dictate everything. So, you know, whether they're good players, role players or whatever, they're the older players. And and anyhow, so I got the six most senior players in into a room on this Sunday morning. And I said, boys, we have got a problem. You know, Gary's not here again, Gary Abbott Senior. He's involved in a church. Uh, That's his wish. Um, But I'll tell you what, we're going to make a decision you six and me are going to make a decision here and now. I will f- finish him up tomorrow. Don't make a mistake because I've done that before. Or you people are happy with him to be there and I will give some extra training with him on Monday night. He just kicked 14. He's, he's the star <laughs> of the show. <laughs> it's a pretty anyhow.
1: pretty quick discussion, I imagine, yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah, it didn't last long. But, I mean, it was just like, well, okay, you know, we all have our beliefs and, you know, that's what he believes. So it it was probably the time that, you know, we just started to bend a bit. Before then, it was one in, all in. You know, whatever you did, you had to do. We all had to do the same. So I think that was a bit of a start for me too to say, well, hang on, you can actually treat these guys a little bit differently to to some others, you know, because of A, B, C or D. So anyhow, the players... In the We voted that's okay, but I had to make sure he did some work on Monday. And I said, look, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> yeah. So you do, Ben. And, and there are a lot of other little stories like that. Really little stories. Um Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, but that was I mean, that, that was part of the fun of it, I reckon. Particularly, you know, when he kicked another 10 the next week.
1: <laughs> Malcolm, if I could take you back. At a time machine I could take you back and introduce you to that eight-year-old who was sneaking into the Percy Fox grandstand to listen to what the coach had to say knowing what you know now what would you say to him
2: Wow well, um, first of all um, I wouldn't have smoked because the whole <laughs> the whole room was just a pool of smoke everyone smoked at a half time so I grew up well that's what you do. Uh, that would be the first thing, and, uh, yeah. and we all know now that we probably shouldn't have been. Well, anyway, And the other thing was that when, when the coach spoke, and, and a lot of them shouted too, and you've got to remember why. You know, there's trainers moving around the room. You know, there's some officials there, and, I, and it was just this busy place. You know, there's a bloke getting a rub. There's someone getting a bit of tape on, and the smell of the liniment. And so the coach... You know, to get them all together and just quietly sit in a room that wasn't then, so you actually had to yell a bit to get above, and I wondered why we all started yelling, but that was hey, that wasn't the glamorous stuff we've now got. you know there's blokes on benches, blokes sitting on four, the four was forty three years of age and belted around and so it was quite a busy place, so. I always I used to watch the coach and then I watched the other blokes listening and half would be pulling up their boot and half would be pulling giving themselves a scratch and so the coach had to get their attention. So it was it was quite a noisy, it was actually a bit of a frightening place for an
1: eight, nine-year-old, but I loved it. And the advice, if I could take you back there, don't smoke. Is there anything else that would come up?
2: <laughs> uh yeah, you could probably get the guy's attention a bit more often and, and just move the trainers away and get those that need help to get help and then start your talk. So it was a bit of, once again, time timing. is a great thing in sport.
1: Malcolm, we haven't met before today, or we spoke briefly in preparation, but just listening to you, what strikes me is that you ask great questions, either of yourself or the people around you. Do you know where that skill comes from?
2: <laughs> <I'm> probably, <laughs> I, I'd probably, say I'm guilty of this all the time, but, but uh, I was pretty quiet as a kid. I was pretty quiet. Um, someone once told me, you know, the old story, you've got one tongue and two ears, so you should listen as much as you talk, or to half, as, half as much. Anyhow, I, no, I just think that I, I've always been a bit inquisitive, um, even in my work life the same, even at home. But, yeah, I, I, I just think I spent time... Um, we didn't have a car growing up um, so I, wherever I went I walked or ran and I can just remember, you know, and I, I could do it I had an older brother, we did it a bit but I, I, I loved just being out there and thinking about, you know Mrs Jones lives there and I, I'd actually work, work the streets and down to Woodville Oval, my favourite Oval, and I knew every nook and cranny you know, I'd, I'd sort of go different ways and I'd go off in my own little world and I, I, I think Although I was reasonably quiet as a kid, I think I could go off into my own little world. I think, on reflection now, at my age now, maybe I went a bit too far off the world sometimes.
1: I don't think that's the case at all, Malcolm. One last question, if I could. Um, you're 72. You, I'm not. I know you. I'm not sure you're coach mentoring anymore. I'm not sure, but I'd be really keen to ask you about legacy. You've lived as you said in the start in was it 24 different addresses 22 different addresses over the years you've touched so many lives you've been involved with so many people and organizations and i'm wondering what you hope the legacy is that you've left with these people and teams that you've led hmm i Paul, i've
2: been on it um you know to be a legend in the hall of fame at the rf but i'm also on it because um four football clubs in this country have honoured me with life membership. Um, it's pretty rare, in fact, probably none, um, to think that, you know, a group of people, their time at the club, uh, saw fit to, and I certainly didn't spend 10 years, you know, the old 10-year rule with uh, with all of them, really. Um, but, yeah, so honoured to, to give me that. I'm, I'm really, I'm really chuffed by that, that the that maybe in your time there absolutely in your time there I, I you know hopefully I didn't spare the horses I actually was committed as anything and hopefully helped that club through that time uh, whenever that may have been so um, met some wonderful people too was the people that you've met uh, the players that you've coached you know just and just really good people the trainers I mean they are fantastic people this you know the property stewards I mean, they are, you know, the microcosm of, of the uh, whole whole suburbs and so yeah, I, I just think that I've been fairly honoured uh, it's been a great game though it's been a wonderful, wonderful game
1: Malcolm, it's been an absolute privilege to spend an hour with you today um, not only because you've got me out of housework but because it's been great listening to your lessons along the wonderful journey that you've had and I just want to say thank you again for, for your time and the stories that you've shared uh, Paul, this
2: is uh, great. Great to talk to you. Um, thank you for your research. Um, and also, I guess, uh, hopefully, someone out there, if ever they fall across this podcast somewhere in the past, say, geez, I learned something from that bloke. That would be a wonderful thing to happen.
1: I'll let you know if anybody passes along that feedback.
2: Good <laughs> anyway, mate. Bye. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Malcolm.
0: You've been listening to the great coach, Malcolm Blight. Regardless of how familiar you are with Australian rules football, I hope you got a lot out of Malcolm's deep wisdom and reflective style and found a few ideas that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room or boardroom table for discussion. Some of the other key ideas that resonated with me were how gifted players have a drive to get better. And this is where he was able to help them through a focus on teaching. The story he shares about working with athletes to build their self-doubt and the many varied methods he used to try and lift motivation. How he dealt with Gary Ablett Senior, one of the greatest players of all time and something of a maverick in the context of team rules and the culture they were trying to create. And how there is no such thing as a super coach. Instead, there is a person getting together with a group of athletes and through their decisions are able to make a difference in a small number of games throughout the year I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did and just before we go if you have any feedback then please let us know just like Mark Zimmerman who said I've learned so much from these episodes and as a mindset coach who absolutely embraces continuous improvement these episodes have helped in so many ways thanks Mark We love the interaction with people around the world who listen, and so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, then please let your friends know too. And all the details on how you can connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.